over and over on this journey, I, I have had to choose between my own comfort or the weight of this issue and, and the urgency of the issue and lay aside my ego in order to engage in the work in ways that are not always comfortable. Controversy is inevitable for leaders who stay true to their values, their boundaries, and their mission. To intentionally avoid ever being controversial is to deliberately choose to tap out and play it safe. Keeping the peace, making everyone happy, staying away from controversy may feel easier and seem like the best path, but that's not leadership. It's just placating, appeasing, and complacency. But you know you can't please everyone, and and you also know it can feel scary leading your life and your business in the age of cancel culture, doxing, and the blood sport of online critics always circling, looking for their next attack. Yet in the end, the path of least resistance is not as appealing as leading through the edges of controversy, not to inflame or attack or offload pain, or definitely not collude with fear, but instead in support of the greater good and freedom for all. Sure, it can have a cost, but not as great as the cost of playing it safe and small on the sidelines. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Avoiding controversy for the sake of comfort is not an option for you as you lead, do life, and rumble with all the big and little decisions before you these days. Sure, you don't want to contribute to the noise. You're not looking for a fight, or like me, trying not to get scrappy just to offload some stress, or you're not looking to be right just for the sake of being right. You value the big picture, you value the mission, you value the greater impact. These days, people try to shock us so they can manipulate our feelings. They use hyperbole to exercise power over. The polarizations we're living with internally and in our culture lead to many having serious controversy fatigue. But unburdened leaders get the nuance of standing up. They also understand the sacrifices, and they would rather step up for what is true than play it safe. We all need to do a better job of respecting this kind of leadership by supporting those who are willing and able to take the heat when the status quo threatens the integrity of important work and fosters dehumanization, which is why I am really happy to introduce you to today's Unburdened Leader guest, Blythe Hill. Blythe is the CEO and founder of Dressember Foundation, an anti-trafficking nonprofit organization. Through their annual campaign, thousands of people across the world commit to wearing dresses or ties for a month of December as a way to raise awareness and funding for anti-trafficking work. I'm so excited for you to hear the backstory behind this. Since 2013, Dressember advocates have raised over 10 million US dollars and resourced dozens of anti-trafficking programs across the US and the world. Dress Ember has received press and attention from the likes of Forbes, Glamour, and Style, Good Housekeeping, Cosmopolitan, The Today Show, among others. And in 2019, Blythe was named one of InStyle's 50 Badass Women. How cool is that? 
alongside powerhouse ladies like Michelle Obama, Christine Blasey Ford, Angela Davis, and Gail King. Blythe currently lives in Seattle with her husband, son, their dog Friday. She loves a good red wine, a good cheese, and clearly a good pun. <laughs> Listen to how Blythe connected the dots with her passion for decreasing human tra- trafficking with her own story. Pay attention to how Blythe developed her skills as a leader while growing a nonprofit from scratch. And notice how Blythe approached a controversial issue while staying true to her expertise and pushing through her own growth edges in the process. This episode has a trigger warning as we discuss matters around sexual abuse. Take good care of you and know that your well-being is way more important than pushing through this episode. Now, please welcome Blythe Hill to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I am so excited to welcome Blythe Hill to the show today. Blythe, welcome. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Oh, I cannot wait for this conversation. And my goodness, we are recording this during like <laughs> such a pinnacle point in our history. And I, um, I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts on things. So I want to jump in and maybe start a little bit about history. I want our listeners to know a little bit about you and this important work you're doing. So 15 years ago, you had your own personal reckoning around your eyes opening up to the devastation of human trafficking, which led to the beginning of Dressember, which is your nonprofit. I'd love for you to share what was going on in your life at the time and how was your offhand idea or what was your offhand idea that led to this really important and expansive movement? Yeah. So I, 15 years ago, I was in college and I, I don't even know how I came across the article. It wasn't in a class, but I really just stumbled on an article about sex trafficking in India and it just stopped me in my tracks. Um, I, I was just horrified and, and felt a sense of like urgency to do something that I had never felt before. And, um, and I wondered why I hadn't heard about it yet and why, you know, why no one was, no one that I was watching or listening to was talking about it. Um, and sort of felt like, you know, if people, if people knew this was happening, they would feel the way that I felt, which was that urgency. Um, and then, I mean, it was pretty immediate, you know, after, after feeling this sense of urgency and like, okay, what can I do? I immediately kind of looked at my options of, of how I might engage in, in this issue. And and that's where I pretty much immediately kind of hit a wall because it felt like, okay, there are about five clear pathways, uh, vocationally to engage and none of them really felt true to who I am and, and, you know, how I'm wired and, and my skill set. And those pathways were social work, psychology, criminal justice, law enforcement. Um, so I, as passionate as I felt, I felt this immediate sense of powerlessness. Um, and what really kind of added insult to injury to the whole thing is it, it wasn't just that my skills and personality didn't seem to line up with those, those pathways, but they also felt kind of shallow by comparison. Um, when I looked at the things that I am interested in, you know, writing, blogging, fashion, trend analysis, wordplay, um, 
yeah, it just, it felt really inconsequential. Um, and it, it felt very much like, well, how, how would I even use these things to, to begin to tackle something so enormous? Um, and then kind of meanwhile, or, you know, within a couple of years from that, I, um, I was in grad school getting my master's in English and just like buried in books and academia and had no time for anything but schoolwork um, and feeling kind of creatively stifled as a result. Like, oh, I don't have any time for my normal creative outlets. Um, so I sort of thought, okay, well, I have to get dressed every day and maybe that is my chance in this season to to be creative. Um, so I came up with the idea just totally on a whim, like, I'll try wearing a dress every day for a month. And it happened to be November. And um, so I decided, okay, I'll wear only dresses in the month of December. And because I love puns, I came up with a name for this little challenge called Dressember and, um, and then did it. And it was, yeah, it was just a quirky, fun challenge I was doing. There was no like fundraising or cause element at all to it. Um, but then the next year, some of my friends brought it up in the fall and they're like, Hey, are you going to do that again? We want to do that with you. And then the next year after that, my friends, friends were bringing it up to them. And that's when I started to dream about like, Oh, maybe there there's, you know, people like this, maybe there's something I can do with this. Um, and I started to dream about the possibility of using it, turning it into an anti-trafficking campaign, seeing if we could raise a few thousand dollars for an anti-trafficking organization. So that's kind of the, the genesis of, of the organization then, because um, it was the fifth year of Dressember, so 2013, that I you know made what felt like a really bold move to turn my light fun challenge into a, an anti-trafficking campaign. Um, hoped we could hope we could try to raise $25,000. That was my like huge ambitious goal. Um, and we ended up hitting that in three days and then raised $165,000 by the end of the month. And yeah, that really was just like, Oh my gosh, like this is a much better idea than I realized. Um, and that's when I began the process, uh, to, turn it into a 501c3 and and take steps to to really build it into a foundation. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work to take a an idea to a legit grown-up adulting nonprofit. So way to go on that. I want to circle back on something you said at the beginning of our conversation that I suspect just about everyone I know can relate to um, at some point in their life, if not continuing to do so. You came upon this article reading about sex trafficking in India. Mind was like, like mind blown, mind, heart, maybe your heart was crushed recognizing the devastation of this. Do it. You did an inventory of how can I have an impact on this? What can I do about this? You looked at these vocations and careers and went, this isn't a fit with me. This isn't true. And then you jumped us forward to grad school around your, and got to your creative expression around wearing a dress every day. Can you talk a little bit about the time in between then what you did with this awareness around sex trafficking, your desire to do something and feeling like where your gift sets are laid and um, just, you, you know, your abilities laid, 
how were you rumbling with that? Can you talk a little bit about the tension you were holding there and how you were navigating this issue between when you first discovered it to when you started playing around with supporting this issue through December? Yeah, it was really frustrating um, for mm-hmm. several years there, just that that tension of feeling so passionate, but so powerless. There wasn't really a mainstream conversation about the issue. And at that point, it was, you know, the conversation that was happening was about the issue internationally. You know, when I when I was learning about it, and, and these years leading up to December turning into a campaign, it was perceived as a third world country issue, you know, sex tourism in Cambodia and Thailand. And, and so that sort of added to my frustration is like, you know, not only do I need to reroute my career, but I need to move across the world in order to engage um, in it. And so it just, it felt, it felt really frustrating to, to really want to do something about it, but again, feel pretty powerless. And, and I really was honestly taking a hard look at, you know, could I go down one of those pathways? That's how, how passionately I felt about it. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I just uh, tried to learn as much as I could, um, followed a few organizations during that time and tried to just keep my eye open for, for ways to, to be involved, you know, other than donating, which I did my, you know, $20 here and there. Absolutely. I know it can be, it can- issues like this can feel so big. And sometimes there's this belief that one of the the only ways or the best ways to support this is going on the front lines. And um, I, I'm, I also want to bring you back, bring us back to where you started playing around with your own creativity as a way to navigate the grind of grad school with fashion. And that's something I think I've been waking up to myself is that is a creative expression. It's not something superfluous or superficial. And, um, and it actually is a way to be creative. Tell me about the the leap of connecting the dots with the interest of people doing this dress ember challenge for fun. Yeah, you know, I had a blog at the time, um, like on Blogspot, and it was just, you know, for <laughs> fun. And I would post my dress ember pictures on there mainly to just prove that I was doing it. And so, you know, I think hashtags were a thing back then. I'm trying to remember, but like on a blog, how I was able to kind of see other bloggers that were participating, but I was seeing engagement from more and more people that I didn't know personally and just saw like, okay, people, yeah, people like this. I joke that I have a lot of bad ideas that, that never go anywhere. And so seeing one move past my immediate network, I was like, oh, this one's, this one's moving. This one's, this is a good one. And then a friend suggested turning it into a fundraiser. And I'm pretty sure I just like laughed that off. Cause I was like, you know, we are not, this is not hard. Like we're not, um, we're not running a marathon. We're not biking across the country. Um, we are just getting dressed. And I was really dubious about the idea of people feeling compelled to donate to us for this difficult challenge we're taking on. Um, you know, as a side note, I know it is hard for some people and I have days in the month that are hard as well, but overall, you know, it's not a, it's not a grueling physical challenge. Um, but then I caught on to, I had heard of the Movember campaign, um, which is the month long campaign where men grow mustaches in November to raise money for men's health issues. Um, I had heard of that, but didn't realize it was a fundraiser until around 2011 or 12. And, um, 
so then realizing like, oh, they're raising money, like how much have they raised? And at that point, they're raising millions of dollars. And I sort of like, you know, stopped and couldn't believe that and thought, you know, if, if a bunch of men can can raise millions of dollars by growing facial hair, then there's a good <laughs> chance that um, a group of women can can raise some money for this issue of anti-trafficking. And that's that's kind of what gave me proof of concept to to go for it. I love that. I love how to like you talked about feeling so passionate about this issue, yet powerless. And you kept wrestling with it, writing it, writing about it, reading about it, tithing some of your resources, um, talking about it with your peers. And I think sometimes those it's just such a great example of those seeds of planted that wake us up, that that move us, that we don't have to act right away. Sometimes they need to percolate and, and mature. And um, as you probably grew up into the issue too. So I think that's just a great lesson that we don't always just have to leap um, into something, but to stay curious about it, follow those passions and powerless. You you weren't totally powerless. You were still taking action. It just didn't feel enough and scarcity can really shut down action. Yeah. Right. And, and it, 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 you were still internal as in rumbling with that. And so I really, I really appreciate that. I want to also just shift gears looking back because what you're at seven years of it being a formal, right. Formal nonprofit. What are, you know, looking back at the beginnings of Dressember in that capacity, what has that leading Dressember taught you um, about leadership and even leading what any lessons or key insights that you have looking back at the beginnings to where you're at today as a leader? Yeah, that's been a wild journey um, <laughs> and a big growth curve. Before all this, I would not have called myself a leader. Um, hmm. I thought, you know, I'm a great supporter. I'm a great number two um, in in executing someone else's vision. But I, I had, I mean, I had led small things like uh, high school youth groups and, you know, small groups some mission work type stuff, but I, I never was setting out to lead an organization or a business or a movement. So there was a lot to learn. And, and when, when Dressember began growing and when I was able to come on staff and then knew that soon I'd be able to start hiring staff as well. Um, I really took that responsibility seriously and, um, you know, I have had, I have had good bosses and I have had bad bosses. And, um, so I, I really started setting up meetings and conversations with leaders in my life who I respected and tried to learn from them. Okay. What, what makes a good leader and and how do you sustain good leadership? And, and what are some of the challenges you've encountered as a leader? And that was really helpful. Um, I think now in retrospect, something I'm really passionate about is this idea of, of a leader. You know, I think a lot of us, I know I, for a long time thought that, you know, some people are just born leaders. They are, you know, they have the, the personality of a leader and people want to follow them. And that's true. But I think most leaders and some of the best leaders that I've seen are, people who grow into leadership and people who may even start as reluctant leaders, um, but they see a void um, and they, they feel a calling to, 
to meet a need. And um, some of the leaders I respect most and the leadership that I try to emulate is one that models ongoing curiosity and learning. And um, I try to be a leader who listens to um, our community and certainly to my my staff, um, a leader who doesn't, you know, hopefully, I really try not to be a leader who gets in the way of um, my team doing their best work. You know, I really want to empower people. I'm not a manager. I don't want to manage people. I want to um, really empower them to own the work in front of them. So that's, yeah, that's the the kind of leader that I try to be. And um, it is an ongoing journey. And there were certainly growing pains, but yeah, it's it's been a good journey. I, I appreciate you reaching out to the leaders that you admire and respect and learn. I know that's been a great resource for me. It's an it's a lifelong practice, and I I also appreciate the phrase of growing into leadership. I think these days there's such an expectation of do you have it or do you not, and often the folks that aren't leading could sit there and toss in their opinions or criticisms and like, Oh, I don't know if they're really have got, you know, I can, I hear that stuff all the time, not just in between my ears, but I hear, you know, the critics section. I'm like, but what are you doing? Are you getting in there? Are you getting scrappy? Or are you just going to hear com- comment on it? We don't give a lot of grace to folks that like you said, are reluctant leaders that are responding to a need. I loved that. And and to say, well, what are you, you know, what are you doing about it? And that to navigate the uncertainty of that. And frankly, the leaders I respect the most started off as reluctant leaders. Um, the leaders that scare me the most are the ones that are hungry for it. And we're living that <laughs> right now too. <laughs> yeah. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. One of the other things that struck me about you and your work and really that it, it, in many ways is the is the passion of this show is talking about how um, the burdens we carry from our story inspire our life's work and getting to know you and your work and your story. It was like, yes. Wow. Um, And you gave a TEDx talk in 2015 Mm -hmm. and you, you boldly shared the parts of your story that feels the why for December. So I'd love for you to share what is the why you discovered that feels your deep commitment to your work at December. Yeah, you know, I took, like I said, I took for granted that passion that I felt early on and really universalized it. I thought, okay, if if people knew about this issue, they would feel what I'm feeling. And um, it took me a few years to really make the connection of, of why I feel so passionate, so drawn to this issue and, and such a sense of urgency um, to fight for specifically women and girls who are currently in exploitation. And for me, it's because of my own experience of sexual abuse as a child. I was four or five the first time I was molested. And um, as someone I knew, someone I trusted, someone I should have been able to trust. And just for years, decades, really, I, I carried this like heaviness of that experience and a sense of shame and a really distorted perspective of myself and my identity as a, as a human, as a woman, and, and really carried 
and sifted through these questions about my worth and lovability and um, purity and um, just, it felt like a whole web of, of questions and, and the weightiness that I was just snagged by for years. And um, I feel really, um, really grateful that I had the resources to access support. Um, you know, therapy was the best investment I've ever made in myself. And yeah, years of therapy, unpacking that, and then um, finding safe people to process it with. And um, really, the the thing that still just surprises me and and angers me about shame is how, you know, we are complicit in, in hiding this abuse as, as people who've experienced it because it's so shameful to us. Um, but then as soon as you shine a light on it, you know, as soon as you bring into the light and expose it, um, it loses so much of its power. And it's like, the more I talk about my experience, the, the less power it has over me. And in a weird way, I almost feel empowered now talking about it because I know what my talking about it will do for other people listening who've experienced similar things that, you know, when you hear someone else share their shame, it, it, it makes you begin to, you know, wonder if you should shine, you know, bring yours to the light as well, especially this sort of like sexual abuse and the shame that comes with it. And in the weirdest, wildest way, I, um, you know, I am not, I'm not grateful for the abuse in itself, but now looking back on the path that it has launched me on and, um, the passion that it's stirred in me for women and girls in the craziest way, I am grateful for my, my whole story and Mm. that that is being used for such good or launched me into this, this path. That's really redemptive. Redemptive is a powerful word for that. And I think as I'm, I think I'm coming up on 18 years as a, as a trauma therapist and several years now as a, as a trauma informed leadership coach. And there is one of them, one of the most important, important tools to healing is meaningful work. And the other part of that is sharing your story with those who've earned the right to hear it. The wisdom of Brene Brown (laughs) shares that a lot. And I just am so grateful. I I feel myself tearing up because I know every time someone's going to hear you talk and share what you just shared, lives are saved, dreams are saved, um, hope is fueled, and more light is shining on the planet because you chose to not stay in the darkness of that shame. But I also acknowledge, I want to be very clear, that took from what you just said, several years of work, private, very deeply, private, sacred work, um, and and to come into your own. But man, I just find it never ceases to amaze you what really lights us up and really makes us excited about how we want to spend our waking hours more often than not connected to some of the darkest times of our life. Yeah, I mean, find me a therapist or someone who does trauma informed anything that doesn't have a little something in their story. 
I mean, and so, and, and, and for me, that's, that's totally redemptive to me doing this work. And so thank you so much. What impact would you say leading Dressember has had on your own trauma healing journey? It's been really, it, it just continues to kind of redeem that, that part of my story. And as it, I think when, when things were first starting and Dressember was so successful initially, um, and I made the connection, I, I sort of felt like, oh, isn't that great that, you know, I've, I've healed from this and now it's compelled me to this. Like it was a very past tense and, and now present tense. And then a few years into it, I realized like, no, this is ongoing redemptive, you know, an ongoing redemptive experience for me because I, I realized at a certain point that in order for me to continuously declare that the sexual abuse of women and girls around the world is, is wrong and evil and not their fault or their shame to carry, I, I have to continuously declare that for myself and my own experience. Mm. And so many people who participate are also, you know, whether knowingly or unknowingly, um, doing the same thing, you know, who may have also experienced abuse. Um, so there's, there's tangible and intangible, like redemptive forces at work in a very ongoing way. That's really rewarding. Hearing you share that, I just get this sense of kind of the, the echoes of Dressember and the other women that participate and um, knowing that a number of them are inspired like you. And the echoes of courage, the echoes of solidarity, the, and even just the echoes of taking action to do something because trauma freezes us up. It shuts down, it freezes, it locks up in the action. And then the beauty of even drawing attention to creatively dressing our bodies, um, especially when shame has said, no, 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 don't be seen. So there's so much, like you said, the layers of this to me are so powerful. I'm really seeing that even more as I hear, hear you share about it. Um, one of the things I've had many people to say to me, even in my own work, cause I joke, I can, I can clear a room, Blythe, especially like when at my kids, like, <laughs> my kids drop off or pick up. They're like, what'd you do today? And I'm like, I led a shame resilience workshop. I have a good one. Or I'm like, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing a talk on trauma informed leadership. They're like, oh, good luck. See ya. You know, I can clear a room and I drop shame or trauma in a second. But I, I, I get why. I mean, I, at first I was confused and I'm like, oh my gosh, duh. Right. I mean, depending on where people are at, but I also often hear like, how can you talk about this and listen to these things day in and day out? Um, you know, that I couldn't handle that. I couldn't handle that. And I I know for me, when someone shares a story that to me, actually, even I'm hearing horrific things, um, there's something that excites me because I know that they're speaking light. There's something that's helped me navigate over the years. But when I think about your work and the level of work and also the nuance of human trafficking in our country and around the globe, there's a, not that there's, I don't believe there's levels of um, abuse, right? But there's an insidiousness that is, it's like hard, my brain isn't even, it's hard to even think about these things, right? It's hard to even grasp what humans are doing to other humans. So in light of, 
of that. And you're talking, you work with nonprofits and who are also on the front lines and talking about statistics day in and day out. How are you? So I guess there's also the, the therapist in me is like, how are you taking care of yourself and your own trauma story in the face of so much trauma as you fight, you know, what you, as you fight to help heal and bring awareness to in your work in Dressember? You know, I still, I'm, I'm a, still a huge advocate for counseling you know, ongoing. I think everyone could use counseling all the time. (laughs) Um, Access is something I would love for more people. Totally. I think, you know, for whatever reason, the way I'm wired, I, as heavy as some of the stories are and some of the work and some of the, the programs that we are directly involved with, you know, hearing, hearing the, how, how well, or um, some of the obstacles that Dressember network partners face in in that work. For the most part, it's invigorating to me. Um, hearing kind of the individual stories or the case by case, what overwhelms me is if I zoom out to the scale of the issue mm-hmm. and the magnitude. Yeah. And um, fortunately, I'm not really a numbers person, so I don't get caught in that too often. Um, but it's usually when I when I make a, a visit to the field um, to see the to see the work in person and to meet survivors and hear more about the the large scale obstacles, some of the systemic obstacles um, that perpetuate systems of trafficking, um, which usually I do once or twice a year. But you know, in a in a non pandemic world, um, we were supposed to go to India last June, and I had. I had gone to India a couple of summers ago and that was a really, really hard trip because I really did feel like I came face to face with just the reality of this overwhelming cultural and systemic misogyny that mm. um, to be born a woman is worse than being born a cow. And um, there are all these sort of cultural expressions um, or phrases, you know, when, when you, when you have a son, you celebrate, and when you have a daughter, you cry. There's a Hin- a Hindu phrase, my husband is my god. Um, so it's this super patriarchy. Um, and to just be confronted with it so so in your face is what I felt um, with the places I was and, and the, the people and the organizations I was engaging with and really... And, and also the colorism, you know, race, racism within a race, that 90% of the clients that Dressember Network partners uh, work with um, are darker skinned, lower caste Indians, and, and that traffickers in India justify um, trafficking people either because they're female or because they're lower caste, like these sort of like systemic uh, reinforcements of no, like this is okay. It's okay that I'm doing this to this person because they're they're nothing. You know, they're worth nothing. That was super overwhelming, and I I it took me several weeks, months after that trip to really um, recalibrate um, because it really felt yeah. I just felt super overwhelmed. It felt like we were putting a band aid on a on a gushing artery, um, mm. and. Um, it felt like we were treating a symptom of something much worse and much bigger. And 
when I felt that and when I feel hints of that feeling, that overwhelm, I have to keep coming back to this very simple idea, a bit cliche of like, okay, no one can help everyone. I can't help everyone. Dressember cannot help everyone, but we can help some people. You know, we can help Mm -hmm. one person and that matters. That's important. And that's beautiful. So I think it's, I think it's normal. And I think it's actually healthy to stay tender enough to be a bit devastated by this work. Um, Mm. Wow. And it is, you know, my counselor said to me coming, coming back from India, like, it is okay that this breaks your heart, but don't let it break your spirit. I, did, I really appreciate that. And I'm just even thinking from a leadership perspective, as you share all of that, I remember when I was sharing, I went through a executive leadership coach program and I was with dear colleagues from, you know, uh, Intuit and McKinsey and, you know, Google and corporate healthcare and all these folks. And we were sharing about what we wanted to do. And I said, you know, I want to do some trauma-informed leadership work. And their eyes got all big and they were like, uh, you can't say that word. And I'm like, why? They're like, it's just too much. It's the, it's the workplace. You can't, you know? And I'm like, okay, then what word would you use? I said, like compassionate leadership and caring leader. And I was like, I played around with it. And I'm like, Y'all, just the reason why y'all reacted is why I'm going to be doing this, you know, and and I, I think this is exactly what you said. We have to stay tender enough to be devastated by this. But so many organizations, whether it's corporate, whether it's nonprofit, whether it's education, you name it, we have, you know, we protect ourselves so much that we've lost our capacity. We're afraid of being devastated because most often people have their own own burdens they're carrying that they you know they don't want to hijack them but i think my gosh if we led from that place where we want to stay tender enough to be devastated and maybe have our hearts broken but not our was it what did your therapist say your spirits your spirit broken mm-hmm. yeah and to trust that we can handle that i think that's that's trauma informed leadership that's unburdened leadership and so thank you for putting some more words to that all right so i have a question i want to dig into this question this is big reason why i brought you on today i've, I've of course i've been following your work since I, I first saw you speak at a conference and have really admired everything about you and what and how you do it so last summer <laughs> maybe even before then, I woke up to this last summer, there was a surge in what some would say sensational allegations from the online space about major online businesses using their companies as fronts for trafficking children and laundering money. This was like popping up with my clients. And, you know, there's all this stuff. I'm like, what is going on? And so you did an Instagram story that I was like, oh, okay, I want to hear what Blythe has to say, because you know, as the founder of Dress Ember, an expert, you are an expert truly in this space dedicated to eliminating human trafficking. How did you address the polarizing claim to those who dismissed it and those who also deeply believed it? Because I thought you handled this beautifully. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was a yeah. weird, it was a weird summer. <laughs> with, with, that's, a, that's one word for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just adding, it's been a, why not, you know, why not this year? Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah, it was so suddenly controversial, which human trafficking has never been controversial. It has never been political. And so all of a sudden it it is. 
Um, and that's mm-hmm. pretty interesting. Um, and so to see so many people fired up on, you know, on both sides of the argument about Wayfair, um, which is the company I assume you're talking about here, because that's, that was the big mm-hmm. one this summer. I, I wanted to talk about it in a way where both sides um, could, could hear me, you know, cause I, I think people, people want to have their opinions confirmed. You know, we're all crawling around social media looking for people to confirm our opinions. And so I don't think that when you simply argue about why you think you're right, you're going to convince anyone. Um, so, so when I did that video, I really was trying to explain to both sides, like, okay, here is why people think this is true. And here is why people think this is uh, bananas. And, um, and then kind of talked about why I thought based off what I've seen and, and, and even partners I've talked, I had talked to in, in those weeks when all this was happening, um, why it was pretty unlikely. And yet, you know, anything is always possible. Um, so that was kind of how I approached all of that. Yeah, I, I think because of the sudden controversy controversy um, surrounding human trafficking and all the theories, um, I've gotten a little more bold in some of my opinions. But in general, I, I, I'm not interested in arguing over the internet, you know. But for the sake of our conversation, I would love to hear your bold reflections. What are some of your bold beliefs and thoughts around this issue? Um, I think zooming out, um, I, I, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, you know, my, the work that we do has a lot to do with awareness and education. And so mm-hmm. seeing the conversation become a bit more mainstream is exciting to me because it's, you know, finally we're talking about this and awareness is spreading. Um, at the same time, anytime there is kind of a new topic that people are new to and, and want to talk about, there's a lot of misinformation and, um, I see it as an opportunity to educate and provide reliable resources and data. And I know, you know, pretty much all of our partners and friends in this space have also been jumping to provide accurate information. Um, It's super surprising to get pushback on that, or um, there's even, you know, some of the, the wildest instances I've seen, like an anti trafficking organization be accused of somehow trafficking people like because Mm. because they um shut down these ideas of a basement of a pizza place being um you know a place that children are being trafficked and murdered because they shut down that theory they must somehow be complicit in that method of trafficking that's wild to me um and you don't see that very often but that does i've seen it and that was my hesitation with bringing Dressember as an organization into the conversation because when when you're dealing with a group of really passionate semi-radical theorists who don't adhere to a set of facts that we can agree on mm. things get a little a little crazy it, it just um it then becomes well 
anyone, like, you know, facts are all facts are under under question. And so anyone can have can come up with facts or opinions that are just as viable as as others. So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but no, I, I appreciate that. I think what what you kind of laid out, though, could be we could talk about for many subjects, right? It's like, if you don't agree with my facts, then you must be a part of what I'm against. And, but I, I think what I was rumbling with on this particular issue and what Dressember is all about, we're dealing with an issue of, of individuals and families and, and systems and all culture, all of this of exploitation and dehumanization and abuse and hurt. And to have this gaslighting approach poured on it, just, it's like, we can, okay, like we can debate this color of the sky you know, fine, whatever. I see blue, you see purple. Okay. But this just, I felt protective and and I felt some parts of me more than reactive deeply. Like I felt like that protective rage that comes out, that mama bear rage come up around this issue. So when I saw you talk and then lay out, here's what we know. Here's what we know about the majority of the people who are trafficked. It's from someone they know. And that you're not going to, because you're in the business of seeing all the things and knowing what he, the darkness of humans, you're not going to rule anything out. And you went through everything I know in my training is like, that's, that's all landed with me. And so I think that I was just really appreciative of your voice and it calmed down like, okay, Blake's talking about this, but it, it it's definitely grieved me more than just, oh my gosh, I can't believe they don't see this or that. It's like, it's exploitation upon exploitation upon exploitation. There's something extra layered dark about it. And I'm, I'm curious how, how was, how was your response received? I'm going to see if, I don't know if I can still do that with Instagram, but I'm going to do my best to link your response uh, to our show notes. Um, Cause I, I believe it's still an IGTV, but how, how do people respond to that, that response where you tried to say, okay, those who see this, those who see that, but let's just, I'll share, here's how we at Tresemba are viewing this and what we, what we're worried about and what we're not. How, how did, how did people respond to that? Yeah, the feedback to that particular post was pretty positive. I don't know that I got a lot of, a lot of pushback on that. I'm trying to think back. That was, um, over the summer, the one that we got a lot of pushback was when we posted on Dressember and specifically addressed it, addressed QAnon, um, because mm-hmm. we felt like, like you were saying the, the added layer of exploitation, you know, where, where there's sort of this, um, exploiting of people's fears and anxieties that, you know, like, Oh, my, you know, my children are going to get kidnapped and trafficked or 800,000 missing children who are being trafficked or, you know, just all these, um, these sensational statistics and stories that, um, I think were really gathered to drive people to respond out of fear, um, instead of, facts and and really you know understanding the situation and and still having compassion for the fact that it's it's probably not your own white upper middle class kids who are at risk you know who who you have contact with all the time i mean absolutely they they could be and teach them great like teach them internet safety and stranger safety and healthy relationships with other adults 
but the majority of people trafficked in the U.S. are um, people of color. It's disproportionately black and brown communities, indigenous communities, um, huge overlap with the foster care system, um, Mm, LGBTQ youth, runaways, homeless youth. Um, So again, it, it, it does of course happens to, to white children. Um, but my hope is that, okay, will all these people who are so passionate about it now thinking that 800,000 children every year are being trafficked and probably assuming they're white children. Cause I don't know. My hope is that, okay, well, when they learn the facts, they will still be compassionate and be led to action. So you're saying even once they realize that maybe their understanding and conceptualization of this issue is a lot broader and more diverse than maybe their understanding that they'll still stay engaged and still stay active and and care as deeply. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. The layers of this are bringing up a lot of privilege, a lot of power over. Um, and that's why, yeah, I'm still, I appreciate you. You helped me get words around something that I was feeling that it was different than a lot of some of the misinformation stuff that because this, it felt like still people were remaining invisible, even as the firestorm was, was happening. So you, know, you even mentioned that um, when you posted on December, you got some heat there and you talk about being an introvert and a lot of people I know, and a lot of people that listen to this show are introverted. Uh, what has the emotional impact of this online storm an interest around human and interest, you know, increased interest around human trafficking. And again, often the misinformation or responses, how has that, how has it all been on you and what, what impact has that had on you? Um, to some degree, I think it's been a good stretch for me um, mm. to, you know, m- making that video about a controversial issue. It was not like in my comfort zone, you know, it was like, okay, well, over and over on this journey, I, I have had to choose between my own comfort or the the weight of this issue and, and the urgency of the issue and um, kind of lay aside my ego in order to engage in the work um, in ways that are not always comfortable. So yeah, with with that specific pushback, it was interesting, you know, something we, we do often is we value feedback and, and especially feedback that comes from our advocates, our supporters, our community. And so we'll look people up, you know, if they, if so, you wouldn't believe how many people come on really vocal and they're like, you know, I'm never donating to you again. And then you look them up and they've never had any interaction with the organization. So people will oh, kind interesting. of, yeah, people talk a big talk, but if there's, if there is valid feedback that comes in from someone who has been a part of our community, we really listen to that and we take that seriously. With the QAnon stuff, we had a lot of negative comments come in from people who have who are not part of the community, and it was really apparent um, that they weren't. And so it was almost like someone, you know, people were reposting on their story and just encouraging people to go uh, trash us, I guess, or troll us. And I, I, I have to just limit the amount of time I spend scrolling, and if I feel you know, you can kind of feel when you, when it shifts from curiosity to like a a heaviness. 
Mm -hmm. But yeah, this, I mean, the whole journey early on has been, uh, there's always been an element of learning to manage the feedback and deciding or kind of filtering what, what I'm going to let in, you know? Um, and so again, if it's like, who is it coming from? Um, how is it packaged? You know, is it, is it good feedback that's poorly packaged? (laughs) Is it just mean feedback that's also poorly packaged? Like that stuff, I just let it slide. But if it's valid feedback, that's maybe not, not communicated well. Um, that's the sort of, sort of stuff I try to sift through and, and really, you know, we want to, we want to be getting better at what we're doing. And so we do, we do weigh through the valid feedback. I, I appreciate the process, right? It sounds like a core value of your organization is feedback and listening to feedback from your community and your members and partners. Um, and that means staying open, but it also is a lot of emotional labor <laughs> to vet the feedback too. And it sounds like that's part of the gig and it sounds like you have support. Am I hearing that correctly? It's not just you weeding through everything. You've got a team. Yeah. That can help you and that was that one of the, that was a big game changer for me when I, I, I think it was 2015 when I first brought on an intern just to manage the general inbox. And that was like just mm-hmm. huge. Cause um, I mean, now a lot of people are sending, like, you know, communicating through Instagram DMs, but that was less common back then. So it was mainly the email inbox felt like the front lines. And so when I could remove myself even one step from that front gate, that really helped my my mental health a lot. And and now, yeah, having a team who manages social media and the inbox, of course, they really only escalate to me the things that are valid or time sensitive. That's great. I think that too, we have, I mean, feedback is a part of leadership and, but especially in this culture, having some systems of support are essential. So I'm glad to think I was worried about that for you. I was like, how's she doing? Cause it's, it's, it's brutal out there sometimes in the online space. Yeah, Actually not sometime often yeah. it is. So, and especially around an issue that's so tender yet so essential um, that we talk more about it. So I, I, I'm so grateful uh, to hear a bit more about the story behind dress Denver today that you shared it and a little bit your leader and how you lead through it, lead yourself and, and leading this organization. Dress Ember is coming up. I know you're in, you're, you're in pregame mode right now. You decided to do dress Ember in November to kind of warm us all up for it. But I want you to share why should people consider getting involved in this year's dress Ember campaign? You know, I have been thinking for months that this year is a hard year to ask people to do this because um, there's a lot going on and we're all, you know, feeling overwhelmed and kind of retreating into our pajamas. But Mm -hmm. it struck me a couple days ago that maybe this year is actually a really easy year to do it because we're home all the time anyway. You know, if you live in a place that has real weather, you don't need to go outside in your dress very often. And I've been having a lot of fun with a with a tripod and and my phone doing these Instagram reels. Oh, you have. Oh, they've been fun. You are dropping joy bombs right now. So thank you. And and that was another part of it is like, no, I think people really need this right now. Like we need a distraction. We need something light and fun that is still making a great impact. And so, yeah, I, 
uh, anyone listening, I just personally invite you to, to jump on board. I think it's, it's such a fun month. It's such a fun month and, and it really, there's a great community and a lot of fun, like mini challenges within the challenge. And then I think it's like an amazing opportunity to be surprised by how your community shows up for you and supports something you're passionate about. I'm always surprised by who donates to my page and, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a great time of year for it. And I think entering the new year with a sense of hope and, and ending 2020 by making an impact on a, on a community that desperately needs it right now. Cause you know, that's, that's not something we talked about, but the urgency is absolutely there for, for victims and survivors of trafficking right now and the impact of COVID uh, on, on trafficking. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and and I, I really value how you toggle something that is so um, dark and insidious with joy and light and creativity. You do it with such intention. It doesn't feel like this, you know, we're not getting hustled. It's just, and, and, and Brene Brown talks about like why the joy and the light and the dark, they, they kind of toggle together. And, um, and I feel like you really live that in, in, how you lead your organization. So thank you. Uh, one final question. How do you, what do you say to those who feel like this is not their issue or maybe just how you felt at the beginning that they can't make a difference? If this is not your issue, I would challenge you to read more about it because it overlaps with mm. so many other issues. You know, it overlaps with, um, with racial justice it overlaps with homelessness, with foster care, with incarceration, with drug addiction. So many issues are not single, single problem issues, you know? Nailed it. Yes. So yeah, that's, that's how I'd respond to that. And then the second part of your question was about someone who might think that they can't have an impact. Um, and, you know, we, we, we talked about a little bit earlier the idea of like wanting to make the big leap, you know, I think so many of us just want to wake up tomorrow and make a big impact. And, um, that's not usually how it happens. It's a series of small yeses. Um, and big impact is really made up of a lot of small impact moments. Um, I mean, looking at the dress number community overall, the average advocate, which is what we call our fundraisers, um, raises about $250, um, which isn't a really? huge amount. Wow. Yeah. It's not a huge amount, but when you put together this army of people who, um, are unified in this last year, we raised $2.5 million through our community. And so I think even, Thank you for that. yeah. Wow. So even if someone comes in and they, you know, even if you raise $0, but you're having a lot of conversations and you're spreading awareness and you're sharing the mm -hmm. resources that we provide, you know, we provide 31 days of statistics and 31 um, social media ready graphics that you can post and um, all sorts of other resources, dressember.org slash resources um, to really make, make things easy for you, make it easy, give you a language to talk about this issue. Yeah. Even if you raise $0, but you are spreading awareness and, and providing education to people who may not have ever heard of this issue or think that it looks like a child being kidnapped by a, a van, um, which it can, but it usually doesn't, um, you know, spreading, spreading accurate information is important. And, and we, we certainly don't discount the importance of awareness as 
step one to any other sort of impact. Yeah. And I also just forgot to mention, too, that if you are not the dress wearing type, and I know that can expand a lot, you also can wear a tie. Yeah. And I thought that, I'm kind of curious about that one, to be honest. I'm, I'm playing around with that. Do I do ties or do I do dresses? So there's some options. So where can people find you and learn more about December and how to get involved? Where, yeah, where can they find all that stuff? Yeah, uh, Instagram's probably our, you know, our main channel. So Dressember on Instagram. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter and we're figuring out TikTok as well um, as, a, as a new place for Dressember. Um, and then I'm on, I'm on Instagram, Facebook as well. Um, and then our website is, is a great resource. It's where you can sign up for the campaign, where you can donate um, either to the general campaign or a specific advocate. You can um, go to our blog to look up um, keyword stories. We, we probably have thousands of articles at this point on our blog um, or the resources page that I mentioned, or we have, we also have an ethical fashion directory on our site. Um, oh, that's right. So there's a lot, a lot of, of resources on, on the Dress Number website. Yeah, it's a gorgeous website. You've done a great job with that. Blythe, thank you. Thank you, not only for what you do, for who you are, for how you show up. Thank you for this conversation today. I am going, I'm not sure how I'm participating in Dress Ember yet, but I will be supporting it. And I cannot wait to get more people involved myself and look forward to seeing how it folds out this year. Thank you for your light wow. and for your heart. Really grateful for this Thanks, time. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Leading is hard, especially when controversy is stirred up. When you stand up, speak up, dare to rock the boat in the name of staying aligned to your values, it can also shake your confidence. It can also feel your inner courage and compassion. The attacks, the pushback, the feelings of being misunderstood never get easier, but it does build fortitude and deepens your commitment to your life's work. Take some time to connect your life's work with your story. What connections do you notice? Where are you avoiding controversy and sacrificing your boundaries, your energy, your values as a result? I have a feeling a lot of you are going to see some key learnings here. And what are your biggest fears around leading through controversy? And what support do you need to move through these big fears? I'm so thankful for Blythe's example of daring to take a stand in a way that convicts and inspires instead of defaulting to using fear, othering, or bullying. She calls us all up on how to lead through the controversy without compromising our own integrity or life's work. So here's to not backing down to expanding our bandwidth and leading through controversy in a way that informs, respects, and stands above the noise. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. You do not mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan of action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. 
Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate the inevitable conflict between the ears and with those you lead, when the t- when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 